it was only in 1171 in the Council of Armagh that all Englishmen were freed from slavery in Ireland. So that was pretty late in the day. But th that started happening once William the Conqueror consolidated his hold on England and started taking over the coastlines of Wales and elsewhere, which made it much harder for anyone else to slave from those areas. Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Jean de Valette, Grand Master of the Knights of Malta, was one. John Smith of Pocahontas fame was another. Elie Poulard, a Frenchman in World War II, was also one. As was Ivan Denisovich, a.k.a. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. They were all made slaves by barbarous regimes. No one has a monopoly on suffering and persecution. Like religion, prostitution and fighting wars, enslaving others has been a human activity for millennia. From the Aegean to the Americas, from Nazi labour camps to the Soviet gulag, regardless of colour or creed, millions have been captured, forced to labour and often worked to death. An estimated 15 million Africans were taken and enslaved in the New World, 20 million Russians in the Gulag and 12 million from 20 different nations were used by the Nazis as slave labour. This appalling trade even continues to the present time. Our talk today is the story of white slavery. Jamie, what is the context? Well, as you said, Tom, no one has a monopoly on suffering. No one can claim uniquely that their peoples have been persecuted because history, as we've said in all our podcasts, is really a continuum. If you stick a pin in a timeline, you will find barbarism and slavery. You can go back to ancient China and see the millions enslaved there, the half million used to build the Great Wall of China. You can look at the Second World War and see how the Japanese enslaved hundreds of thousands of women from China, the Philippines and Korea. There were half a million of them used as comfort women, as forced prostitutes for the Imperial Japanese Army. And of that number, most were Korean, and three-quarters of them are estimated to have died in captivity. Many of them tortured and bayoneted to death by the Japanese when they fell pregnant. Come to the present day, you've got the Yazidis, the women of the Yazidis in Iraq, who were enslaved by Islamic State. So throughout history, you find some kind of slavery. If you come to the end of the Second World War and you see how the Soviet Union uh, took over the territories of the Warsaw Pact of Eastern Europe, millions were enslaved there. Two million East Prussians and Silesians just vanished and were never heard of again. You know, my own family, there were cousins of mine who ended up in the Soviet Gulag, including two 16-year-old twin brothers who died from beatings and malnutrition in a salt mine. So... 
I don't need to be lectured about slavery. I mean, it's it's there, and many people around the world today have relatives who and ancestors who have been enslaved, and as you said, whatever their creed or colour. Let's take it back to the question of African slavery to start with. Barbarous, despicable, and huge numbers. Oh, yes, no one would deny that. And at the height of the slave trade, there were hundreds of slave posts along the west coast of Africa, particularly along the Gold Coast. But, again, there's so much that is left out of the story. The fact that so many... Africans were involved in the slave trade themselves. I mean, back in the 16th century, the Imbangala were raiding villages in the interior on many occasions at regular intervals and then selling them on. By the time the Brits had their West Africa squadron up and running and were ensuring that the slave trade was intercepted, they were putting pressure on African rulers to give up the slave trade that they were already engaging in, had had always engaged in. There were some 50 African rulers who were forced to give up. The British actually mounted punitive raids and expeditions against those who refused. So you can see that this was an ongoing situation. In East Africa, there was always a tradition of slaving, and the Arabs were deeply involved in it. It's worth remembering that it was only in 1962, after pressure from JFK, that Saudi Arabia abandoned slavery. And that's why there are three million blacks in Saudi Arabia who are often kept in a situation of total servitude. Even though it was David Livingstone in 1860 who actually first drew attention to this practice uh, to the British government. Yes, when he died, he was heading towards East Africa to try and force the Arabs to give up their slavery. And he wrote several reports on the subject. Uh, It concerned him hugely. And at a time when the slave trade from West Africa was being clamped down on, there was no similar situation in East Africa. In fact, in 1870, the uh, Royal Navy went to try and enforce a, a ban on slavery on the Arabs, but it didn't quite turn out the way they wanted it to. The Brits banned the slave trade in 1807 with the Slave Trade Act. Yes, they did. And in 1808, the West Africa Squadron was essentially established and the Africa Squadron to patrol and intercept uh, the slave ships going from West Africa over to the Americas. It often has unforeseen consequences because when slave ships were intercepted, quite a lot of them simply threw their slaves overboard. It it was a a totally barbaric practice. But once the Brits had resolved to get involved and stop it, they put a lot of resources into it. Uh, Initially, there were only six ships by 1818, but later on, by the middle of the 19th century, there were 25 ships, 3,000 personnel, a 1,000 of them locals. And in 50 years, it's estimated that they prevented 1,600 slave ships from carrying their human cargo over to uh, the Americas. And 150,000 captive slaves were freed and resettled back in Africa. In 1842, the Americans actually sent ships to help the British enforce the blockade. So that's you know, 30 years after the Brits were involved patrolling and trying to stop the slave trade. In 1850, uh, under the direction of Foreign Secretary Lord Palmerston, uh, the Royal Navy actually went into Brazilian waters and blockaded Brazil. 
and two years later the Brazilians abandoned their involvement in the slave trade. Uh, Cuba came later. So, you know, the momentum had started to stop this heinous trade. The Brits played a very big role in that. Yes, so Lord Castlereagh, who was the Foreign Secretary, he went to the Congress of Vienna after the defeat of Napoleon in 1815 at the Battle of Waterloo and was under a lot of pressure from activists in the UK, Quakers and, and others, to enforce, insist that part of the arrangements for the future of, of Europe and, and that part of the world was that slavery was to be banned. And the Ottomans were very surprised that uh, he was pushing for this. And it was against our the British interest in terms of uh, the financial, potential financial rewards. Um, but they still went ahead with it, and it was agreed by the Ottomans, supposedly, that they would end this practice, although, of course, they didn't. Well, as we know, in the 1860s, the Sultan, uh, Abdul Aziz, uh, had a harem of 900 women guarded by 3,000 black eunuchs. So I don't think the Ottomans had ended their slave trade at all. They simply got their supplies from elsewhere rather than through just Barbary pirates and the uh, slaving posts and the slave centres and slave markets of North Africa, which by then had been shut down. In 1816, Castlereagh sent the Royal Navy under the command of uh, Lord Exmouth to lay waste to Algiers. And once he laid waste to Algiers and destroyed the Zebecs and other ships and the Corsair fleets and the North African fleets there, uh, the entire map of North Africa was changed because everyone fell into line. The Moroccans, the people of Tripoli, of Tunis, that were under Ottoman rule by then. And the white slave trade was finished. But it's fascinating that the British only turned their attention to ending the white slave trade in North Africa after they had turned their attention to trying to get rid of and banish the blight of African slavery from West Africa. And how was our old friend Sir Sidney Smith involved in this? Well, he's always been a great hero of mine, as you know, Tom. And we mentioned him in our last stand of the Crusaders podcast. He's a fascinating character. He was eccentric. He defeated Napoleon at Acre in the late 18th century. He routed his army at Acre and forced him back to Egypt, at which point Napoleon fled back to France. But Sir Sidney Smith established his Knights Liberators of the White Slaves of Africa in order to pressure the British government and the governments of Europe into actually dealing with the blight of the white slave trade. And he was hugely effective in this, and that's one of the reasons that Castlereagh ended up taking the action he did to finally finish this trade. And there had been earlier attempts by Charles I, Charles II, by the Hanoverian kings to end it, but nothing had happened until this point. And I suppose it took the Royal Navy becoming so powerful that no one could challenge it for it to clamp down both on black African slaves and the white Christian European slaves in North Africa. Okay, Jamie, where do we start with white slavery? Well, let's start with Greece, Tom. Everything starts with the Greeks. Even though we equate Athens with the birth of democracy and democratic credentials, 
the Athenians were no strangers to using slaves. Slaves worked in their silver mines, they worked in domestic service, they worked as labourers in the fields, and it was part of daily life. The helots across Greece were fair game for any sort of punishment and any sort of use. If you take an island like Delos for 300 years, from about 300 BC, Delos was a key slaving centre. It was a free port. They took in slaves that were brought in, a lot of them by Sicilian pirates, and they took a lot of slaves from the collapse of the Seleucid Empire. So a lot of slaves were coming from Persia as well and as far afield as Russia. And it's estimated by some that Delos was selling 10,000 slaves a day. I suspect that number's rather high. But even if you say 1,000 slaves a day being sold around the Mediterranean from Delos and around the Aegean, you've got a huge number in any one year. So over 300 years, you're talking millions upon millions of people went through those slave markets. And as you mentioned the helots earlier, which was really Sparta, the um, part of the training of the young men of Sparta was that they were encouraged to become quite feral and learn their skills by thieving and so on. And one of the things they were required to do was to kill a slave. Yes, they were known as the Cryptia, and they were the sort of elite, and you proved yourself at the end of your training by being sent across the border into enslaved lands and killing a helot. You know, when you look at the way Sparta was structured, they were quite capable of butchering any helot they wished. If you look at the famous last stand the Spartans made at Thermopylae in 480 BC, uh, people talk about the 300 Spartans, but actually what they should be talking about is the 500 helots who were used as light, light infantry uh, to fight alongside them. So they fought as soldiers and they were used in every other capacity that the Spartans could think of. And almost certainly they were less valued than uh, a horse uh, when it came to whether or not they lived or died. Oh, far less. And you can see it repeated in places like Latin America, the Aztecs. The reason the Spanish managed to defeat the Aztecs in the 1520s, early 1520s, was because the enslaved tribes in the region the, the, who were completely subjugated by the Aztecs simply joined the Spanish in an uprising against the Aztecs. And that's what really helped the Spanish overthrow uh, that particular empire, who were absolutely bestial in the way they treated their slaves. I mean, the Spanish weren't that nice about things, but uh, it was an improvement. If you really want to see an alien culture where one can't quite get one's head around, you just have to see the ritual box in which human hearts were placed after they'd been plucked out of a living human slave that had been captured. Well, we all know that the Romans used and maintained their empire based on slavery. Uh, what, what do you have for us on them? Well, I mean, the Roman system and society was absolutely established on slaves. It wouldn't have been able to function without slaves. And sometimes the slaves rose up. I mean, the one that people know most about is really the Third Servile War, the Spartacus insurrection. And you had up to 120, 130,000 slaves rising up against the tyranny of the Roman system. It was a severe threat to Rome and its control, not only of 
Rome itself, but over the whole of Italy. Eventually it was put down, and we all know about Crassus crucifying 6,000 slaves along the Via Appia, and Pompey managed to crucify another 5,000. So it was pretty brutal the way they put these insurrections down, but from the Roman point of view, they had to be that brutal because otherwise their entire system would collapse. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be that it's always the case with slave revolts in any time that the leaders of those revolts get tortured and executed in the most appalling fashions. Poor encouraged les autres. Moving forward a thousand years from Rome, we had slavery on our doorstep here. Oh, completely. I mean, once you get to the Vikings who are raiding, they were big slavers. I mean, Dublin was founded as a slaving centre, and some estimates are that a million people went through the slave markets of Dublin. They not only used Irish people, they raided Scotland repeatedly and persistently. There's a famous siege of Dumbarton in Scotland in 870 AD, in which the entire population were taken and sold through Dublin. It's little known that because the Vikings were slaving, a lot of people sold their own children to the slave markets of Dublin and to the Vikings. It was probably one way to make money if you were a starving peasant. So it's no coincidence that... At one stage, Iceland is believed to have had 40% Gaelic speakers because it was so full of Scots and Irish. That's uh, one up on the naughty step, isn't it? This Viking slavery racket went on from about the 9th century to the 12th century. It was only in 1171 in the Council of Armagh that all Englishmen were freed from slavery in Ireland. So that was pretty late in the day. But that started happening once William the Conqueror consolidated his hold on England and started taking over the coastlines of Wales and elsewhere, which made it much harder for anyone else to slave from those areas. So the Vikings weren't the only people to take slaves from Britain. Oh, absolutely not, Tom. I mean, the Barbary pirates were ferocious in their attacks over the centuries on British shores. I mean, in 1625, there was two fleets turning up off the coast of Dorset and Devon and Cornwall. They based themselves on Lundy Island in the Bristol Channel, raided North Cornwall, raided South Cornwall, put villages to the torch took scores of people with them. And these are big fleets. I mean, the Zebecks and ships sailing from Sally on the Atlantic coast of Morocco uh, could be as large as 40 ships in one formation. It's hardly surprising. It was a thriving market. And those Barbary pirates who turned up in their ships with a skull against a green background or a, a hand holding a scimitar on their flags and banners, they raided as far as Iceland. You know, They got to Iceland, they raided British coasts, France, Spain, Italy. And so it's hardly surprising the huge numbers of... Europeans ended up in North Africa because they were all taken by Barbary pirates, the Corsairs, uh, people who became known as the Sally Rovers because that was their base, Sally, on the west coast of Morocco. So when you're sitting in Padstow looking out across the Camel Estuary with your 99 and a flake, just think back a few hundred years what it might be to see those ships come over the horizon. And the next thing you know, you're a slave. 
Yes, they certainly raided Padstow and Ilfracombe and places like that. Um, nowhere escaped, basically. And, of course, the authorities in London for centuries were pretty powerless to do anything about it. They couldn't keep a constant fleet down on the tip of Cornwall to make sure that the Barbary pirates didn't arrive. It was very good business. I mean, there was one Dutchman called Jan Jensoon who ended up being one of the key leaders of the Corsairs coming out of Sally. What, uh, he, despite the fact that he was a slave? He, he voluntarily converted and did extremely well out of it. He became the first admiral of Sally and led his teams against Britain, France, Spain and everywhere else. How many slaves are we talking about over the centuries? The estimates vary, but I think they probably tend towards the low side. Some people say a million slaves over the centuries. But if you take somewhere like Algiers that had at any time over 300 years 25,000 slaves there, if you have a mortality rate of 10% of 25,000, that's 2,500 slaves that have to be replaced. Over 100 years, that's 250,000. Over 300 years, that's 750,000. Then you factor in the 25,000 slaves at any one time in Morocco or the 10,000 in places like Tunis and Tangier and Tripoli. So you can see that over two or three hundred years, you're actually talking about three, four million plus. It's very difficult to get a handle on it. But, you know, you add the Ottomans who were rapaciously taking slaves from Russia, Crimea, the Balkans, Greece, and everywhere else. And you've got a huge market, a, a huge movement of people being forced, being taken captive and taken to work as slaves in North Africa. I mean, Janissaries, they were Christian children, weren't they? Oh, yes. And this happened in both the Ottoman Empire and in North Africa, that once you had white children, Christian children, you could not only brainwash them and brutalise them, you could then train them as soldiers, because once they were forced to convert, they were never going to be redeemed. They were never going to be bought back by their original uh, home countries. So... Because they had nowhere to go, because they were in a system that, from which they couldn't escape, they were going to fight to the death for the sultan or whoever ever owned them. And so not only were there the Janissaries, uh, converts and the shock troops of the Ottomans in North Africa and Morocco, there were tens of thousands of renegades of apostate Christians who had been forced to convert working for the Moroccan sultans as soldiers in his standing army of well over 100,000 men. And this forced conversion, I mean, it involves some pretty appalling hoops to jump through, including torture. Even if you were, for minor infringements, you were punished with the bastinado. Um, so this is a description of the process from an English captive called Oakley who says, They have a strong staff of about six feet long, in the middle whereof there are two holes bored into which a cord is put, and the ends of the cord fastened on one side of the staff with knots so that it makes a loop on the other side. Into this both the feet of the person condemned to this punishment are put. Then two lusty fellows, one at each end of the staff, lift it up in their arms, and twisting the staff about till the feet are fast pinched by the ankles. They raise the feet with the soles upwards as high as their shoulders, and in this posture they hold them. 
the poor man in the meantime resting only with his neck and shoulders on the ground. Then comes another knave behind him, and with a tough, short truncheon gives him as many violent blows on the soles of his feet as the council shall order. It was not unknown for people to be beaten up to 500 times on the soles of their feet. I mean, people were crippled for life, totally maimed. And this happened to children as well. It was all in terms of getting a conversion. There are many descriptions of these atrocities happening, and the only way to get around it, to escape from it, was to point your finger upwards to the heavens, and that was seen as your accepting conversion. And then if you were male, you ended up having to have uh, a public circumcision, a very brutal public circumcision. That got you out of slavery, but it certainly meant that by then you had basically sold your soul, and you were never going to end up back in your homeland unless you escaped and that was most unlikely and very rare it was a desperate situation and this sort of torture was meted out not just on men but women were appallingly tortured the ones who were taken unless they converted as well and it happened to children and also rape was common practice and again that happened to men women and children it was just part of the way of brutalizing coercing the prisoners that had been taken and your favourite bad boy in this part of the world, Moulay Ishmael. Oh, Moulay Ishmael, the, the Sultan of Morocco, was so psychopathic and megalomanic, and he was really in control of Morocco for 55 years, from the late 17th century to the 1720s. He did things on a grand scale, and this is one of the reasons he needed 25,000 slaves at any one time. He was building a palace that was so large at Meknes that he wanted it to stretch to Marrakesh, 300 miles away. So he did things on a massive scale. There were hanging gardens that were sort of dug into the earth 60 feet deep. It went on for a mile or so. There were palaces, individual palaces, that went on for miles. There were slaves that were working you know, 15, 16, 17 hours a day. And they were, once they were captured, were held in appalling underground dungeons. They worked in all manner of trades. I mean, from making cannons. I mean, Mule Ishmael's favourite armourer was actually Irish and a man called Carr. He was the best man to get a cannon from in the whole of Morocco. So he had his teams of workers as well who were all captured slaves. They were highly prized. Anyone who was a carpenter or an armourer or a builder, you know, they were set to work. And um, like animals, they were also bred and interbred. Yes, Moulay Ishmael had a breeding programme. He particularly liked mixed-race slaves. He thought they were more reliable. So he, again, had this sort of breeding programme where he had huge nurseries producing the next generation of slaves. He viewed slaves and his own people, even the grandest viziers, as rats. He just thought, they're all rats in a sack and I have to terrorise them, otherwise they will burrow through the sack and escape or attack me. No one knew whether they'd be alive at the end of the day, and certainly slaves who were beaten and broken and worked to death, uh, really their life was very cheap and they could be killed at any moment. Yeah, and apart from uh, bastinado and rape, uh, the more serious penalties inflicted on the ringleaders of slave revolts or breakouts 
often for individual escape attempts and for other serious offences such as sedition and so on, were quite dreadful. I mean, they were, they were crucified. They were thrown off the top of battlements onto upturned spikes, which meant they were impaled. And rather than just being set on fire on the top of faggots, as maybe you would be in, in Europe for being um, a, a witch, they would actually tie them to a post and light small fires around them and literally roast them alive. Oh, yes, they had refined the art of barbarity. I mean, they had years to perfect it. People were often sort of crucified on the fronts of doors and eaten by wild animals. That was another favourite of theirs, or sawn in half. It was just unspeakable what was going on. And this went on for centuries in Morocco and elsewhere in North Africa. It was just standard practice. And the corsairs were deeply cruel as well. They had based themselves in Sally because in 1610, Philip III of Spain had, of course, evicted the Moors, about a million of them, from Spain. So the Muslims flooded back to North Africa. The particularly seafaring ones went down to the west coast of uh, Morocco, based themselves on the Atlantic at Sally. They were protected by a sandbar and, of course, by the winds. It was very difficult for Royal Navy square rigger ships to go and get them there because they had shallow draft Zebecks and other craft, which is one of the reasons they managed to take so many European ships because the European ships never saw the pirates coming before they were overwhelmed. And that's one of the reasons that so many were taken. I mean, hundreds were taken over the decades uh, in the 17th and 18th century. And it was very difficult to get European states, often European states who were at war with each other, to come up with a concerted, cohesive, coherent policy to actually deal with it. And it wasn't until, as we said earlier, the 19th century, 1816, that the Royal Navy sent 18 men of war to lay siege to Algiers. And they laid waste to it, laid waste to the Corsair Barbary fleet. And lo, lo and behold, uh, the slave trade, the white slave trade, ended in North Africa. Interestingly, the Americans had sent a fleet the year before the Brits went out there and forced the Algerians to actually give up all American slaves that were being held there at the time because the Barbary pirates were actually heading out into the North Atlantic and actually taking quite a lot of American shipping as well. OK, Jamie, moving on to the 20th century, a people who equal the brutality of Moulay Ishmael would be the Nazis. Yes, the Nazis had a huge programme of slave labour. They had to. They were engaged in a massive war effort. They never quite went in for the total war concept that the British did in terms of employing women. You know, our land army, our factories, Bletchley Park. You know, in Britain, women had a full role in the war effort. In Germany, they didn't. Given the massive amount of fighting and the losses the Germans were suffering on the Eastern Front in particular, they had to fill those numbers. They also had a, a lot of their own men engaged, you know, a million plus, involved in civil defence, in manning anti-aircraft batteries, for example. They had to have slave labour. They had to have people who could dig ditches, build roads, build camps, put up the V1 
uh, ramps for launching doodle bugs against Britain, for example. So all this had to be done, and it was filled by slave labour. And they had 12 million slaves in the war. Yes, they grabbed people from wherever they could. I mean, 1.1 million Frenchmen were forced into slave labour. Um, 800,000 actually went to Germany itself. There were hundreds of thousands in France uh, toiling away on behalf of the Germans, and a lot of them died. If you take one village in the Vosges, for example, out of the 220 men who were taken at the end of the war, only 40 returned. You know, they suffered huge losses, and one does wonder, well, maybe the French should have stood and fought. They would have had the same number of casualties, probably, as they did from the numbers of slaves who were killed during the war just labouring for the Nazis. Which is an estimated 300,000 killed Frenchmen. Yes, I mean, estimates vary, and, of course, given the chaos of the Second World War, it's very difficult to know who survived, who came back, and who just disappeared into the ether. I mean, the, the numbers are staggering. I mean, 1.4 million Poles were taken as slave labour, 500,000 Belgians. Uh, Czechoslovakia was really an SS fiefdom, and there were many slave labourers digging out mountains, tunnelling, and we've mentioned it before, but if you take the V2 rocket programme run by the SS Hans Kammler in the Harz Mountains, um, you had 60,000 inmates from Buchenwald going and tunnelling in at Dora in, in the side of the mountain, in the Harz Mountains at Nordhausen, and 30,000 came out alive. And many were beaten to death, hanged. Uh, there were prisoners being used for all sorts. I mean, take Monowitz, for example, Auschwitz III. It was built as an adjunct, really, to the main death camp of Auschwitz one and two. It was run by R.G. Farben, who paid the Nazis a certain amount of money for every slave labourer who was supplied. And those slave labourers were literally worked to death. I think out of about 35,000 slave labourers, about 23,000 died. They were going to die anyway from malnutrition, from beatings and being worked to death. It was horrendous. And the Germans did this across the whole of the terrain that they had conquered. Wasn't there a Nazi policy of extermination through labour? There was, Tom. Vernichtung durch Arbeit, extermination through labour. And it was very systematic. If you take somewhere like Monowitz, it was really there to support the building of the Buna synthetic rubber plant, which R.G. Farben was behind. Someone like Dennis Avey, who wrote The Man Who Broke Into Auschwitz, he was a British POW, and he witnessed this. And the horrors he talks about are just extraordinary on a level that you can barely compute. He talks about seeing gibbets with tortured bodies hanging there. He talks about seeing a young Jewish man being beaten with a brick and being forced to stand up and then beaten down again till he was killed. He talks about a female camp guard tripping up a prisoner, a Jewish prisoner, and then beating his brains out with a rock. This was constant. And among all this, there were the IG Farben representatives and engineers just walking about and going on with their labours as if nothing had happened. And in the end, thousands of those Jewish inmates were marched out of Auschwitz III and died on the 
marches away, the death marches from those camps. It was horrendous. What is so tragically ironic is the Buna plant didn't even go into operation. It was destroyed by Allied bombing. So all those people died in vain anyway. You know, if you take what they did to the Russians, you know, it's estimated that up to 30 million Russians died during the war, but millions of those died as slave labourers for the Germans. I remember a description by Paul Brickhill in his fantastic book, The Great Escape, and he was one of the inmates in Stalagla III in Sagan. You know, there were the British and the Americans and the Dutch and other Allied airmen who were housed in pretty bleak, unpleasant huts. But the people who built those huts, the people who cut down the woods, were the Russians. There's a description that Brickhill puts in his book of seeing these poor Russians, these gaunt ghosts, uh, being forced to dig scrapes in the earth and having to live there over the winter. They were given no shelter at all, and occasionally the German guards would throw a potato to them. And it's no surprise that hundreds of those Russian slaves just there alone died. Again, it's no coincidence that the first people on which Zyklon B was tested on were Russian POWs. They were seen as beasts of the field, and it really epitomizes the German attitude towards the Slavs. It was always there. They saw the Slavs, whether Poles or Russians or anyone in Eastern Europe, as their beasts of burden. You know, they wanted to exterminate the Jews, but they wanted to turn the Slavs into drones, into worker drones. And you can see that because, you know, at Auschwitz, there was a horrendous scientist called Professor Klauberg. And not only did the Germans want to fill the numbers of Germans, make up the numbers that were killed, and so they had fertility programs. They wanted to develop fertility treatments for German women. And, of course, they had their breeding programs, just like Mule Ishmael in North Africa. So they had these breeding programs. But, but one of the other things they wanted to do was sterilize the Slav race. So Klauberg was experimenting using high doses of X-ray on Russian prisoners. And what happened, their genitals blackened, rotted, and fell off, and they were sent to the gas chamber. But these were the sort of dreadful things the Nazis were doing to all their slave laborers across Europe. Uh, you know, at Monowitz in Auschwitz III, it was IG Farben trying to produce synthetic rubber. So across the Reich, you had synthetic rubber plants, you had synthetic oil plants, mm -hmm. and slave labor was at the bedrock of all these efforts for Germany to survive and win the war. Quite a few of these companies still exist today. Oh, yes. I mean, there wasn't a German company that didn't use a lot of slave labour, whether it's Bosch, Siemens, Krupp, IG Farben, you name it, Thiessen. They, they all use slave labour. And it wasn't just adults that they took and used as slaves? No, it was children as well. They took hundreds of thousands of them from across Europe. In Operation Hoy Action, they took up to 50,000 children from Poland between the ages of 10 and 14. And some of them, again, were worked to death like the adults. Some of them were, uh, quote-unquote, integrated into German society. Some of them were adopted. But many of them died. Again, there's a poignant tale from The Great Escape because 73 of the 76 escapers from Stalag III 
uh, were rounded up. Uh, only three managed to escape out of that number. And so 73 were in Gestapo hands. In one Gestapo jail, various groups of British Allied prisoners were marched away, put on trucks, and then machine-gunned or shot with pistols in the forests. There's a story of one cell in which several Allied prisoners were kept, and a Polish boy came in to clean the cell, and he just turned round to one of the British prisoners and whispered, Deutschland is kaput. So I suppose even among the children, there was some degree of hope, some belief that one day there would be an end to the suffering and they would be freed. But it just shows the level to which the Nazis had stooped in terms of enslaving the whole of Europe. Well done, the Poles. We can't leave the subject of working people to death without mentioning the Japanese and the Burma Railway. No, we can't, Tom. The record of the Japanese was horrific during World War II. Nothing symbolises it better, really, than what happened to Allied prisoners of war, mostly British and Australian, on the Burma Railway. 50,000 were marched into Thailand and Burma to build several hundred miles of railway through what was considered impenetrable jungle. And with very poor tools, they had to blast rock, drill their way through, lay track. And of the 50,000 who were marched up there, a quarter of those died. And they died terrible deaths from malaria, from cholera, from dysentery, from starvation, from beriberi, scabies. They were tortured. Many were crucified or bayoneted or bludgeoned to death by Japanese guards. And there was no proper antiseptic, no proper anaesthetic. Their bandages were strips of canvas tent. It was terrible, and they were working up to 18-hour shifts. Was there any difference between them and the Nazis in terms of the the Japanese soldier wasn't treated very well either by the people in charge? I mean, they were all considered to be kind of the lowest of the low, weren't they? Well, prisoners of war considered beneath contempt by the Japanese, and they didn't recognise the Geneva Convention, and they certainly weren't treated in the same way as the Germans treated prisoners of war, certainly British prisoners of war. It's different, as I said, between the way the Brits or the Americans were treated by the Germans and the way the Russians and the Slavs were treated. And three million Russians died, as we know, uh, in captivity by the Germans. But what the Japanese was terrible, and they also treated their... Malay and Tamil, Indian Tamil forced labour terribly. Uh, It's reckoned that up to 120,000 of those died. And at one stage, when the railway was built and the Japanese sent trains along it, a lot of the Tamils simply ran forward and placed their necks on the line so that they'd be killed by the train. And their their eyewitness reports of so much blood flowing that the, the wheels of the train couldn't gain any traction. At every camp along that route, there were pyres with burning bodies, burning 24 hours a day. And apart from the 12,000 Brits and Australians who died on that railway, you have to take into account those who died and suffered you know, long after that event. And my stepfather was in the first team with the paras and commandos that went into Changi Jail in Singapore at the end of the war, and that was a jail that was designed for 600 inmates. It ended up with 8,000. And 
the average weight of most of these men, these POWs, was about 80 to 90 pounds. That's around six stone, half their body weight by the end of the war. Uh, they were skeletons. And I don't think my stepfather could ever forgive the Japanese for the harrowing sights that he saw. It was truly horrendous. So once you've, um, once you've labelled a certain group of people subhuman, uh, it gives you licence or gives them, these, these people, the Nazis, the Japanese, licence to treat them like animals or worse than animals. Yes, and as Dennis Avey said in his book, The Man Who Broke Into Auschwitz, you know, he remembered walking over miles and miles of what he calls stripies, the guys, the Jews in their striped pyjamas who were just shot on the side of the road or who just died. And these were people who were forced to march for hundreds of miles just wearing clogs through the snow. It, it, they weren't going to survive. We mentioned at the beginning of this talk, uh, Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he also wrote, obviously, the Gulag Archipelago. But the Nazis' cruelty was only rarely matched by the appalling cruelty of the Russians to themselves. Yes, that's what's extraordinary, is that the brutality that the Soviets meted out was so often to their own people. And you look at the history of communism and you've got you know, the Virgin Lands campaign, the Black Earth scheme, the starvation of the Ukraine, decoolocization, the getting rid of that peasant class, the rapid industrialization of communist Russia. Millions were killed at every stage of that process. During the Second World War, they lost 30 million, but then Stalin killed 30 million of his own people in the purges and the terrors and the mass starvation. So what happened in the Gulag was simply symptomatic and emblematic of everything that happened in the rest of Russian history. I mean, even before communism, in the 18th century, when St. Petersburg was being built, the Russians employed 500,000 slaves and serfs. A 100,000 of those are believed to have died. Some of them were Swedish prisoners that the Russians had taken in war with Sweden. But you know, there was no human rights then. And that sort of level of brutality continued into the communist era as well. I mean, if you have a, an autocratic totalitarian state, be it czarist or Soviet, you're going to get terrible schemes and terrible suffering across the board. If ever there were an emblem of Soviet cruelty, oppression, inefficiency and ruthlessness, it's the Road of Bones, the Kalima Highway. And that runs from Nizhny Bestiak in the west to Magadan in the east. And it's about a thousand miles. And that alone, during Soviet times when it was being constructed, cost the lives of 250,000 slave labourers, prisoners from the Gulag. That's over one person for every 10 metres. And it's called the Road of Bones because people actually buried beside it and under it. There was nowhere else to put them because of the permafrost. So that was seen as the most efficient dumping ground for all the slaves who built it. You know, it's within the last 100 years. It's staggering that this level of cruelty could occur. But then I suppose we then got used to the killing fields of Cambodia in the 1970s. So we shouldn't be surprised. And again, it's part of timeline, this continuum of history of human oppression and terrible behavior. And the road of bones says it all. 
there's another Soviet project that really fits into the same mould, and that was the BAM railway, uh, the Baikal-Amur railway. Again, a crazy Stalinist project that actually continued into the 70s because it was an attempt to build a railway up to 500 miles north of the Trans-Siberian Railway, just in case the Chinese should attack and cut the link between Russia's west and Russia's far east. So they built this railway, and again, through the permafrost, and it was immediately redundant and obsolescent because ships can go faster and take more stuff from places like Vladivostok. So why have a railway? It's basically a remnant of the Soviet empire. It's sinking into the permafrost. No one uses it. And the towns along its way are full of drunks and mad teenagers who are basically doing extreme selfies and throwing themselves off buildings because there's nothing else to do. It's uh, no coincidence that I actually set parts of my thriller cold cut there because it's quite useful to choose a place that no one knows about and no one goes to. So Russia ends a very long list of horror and slavery that has bedeviled humankind for centuries. And it's no surprising that cannibalism was rife in Soviet Russia and starvation and imprisonment and killings were really part of the menu that was happening out there all the time for centuries. Thanks, James. Well, um, do we have a PS before we bring this to a close? Well, maybe we should bring it full circle around to the modern day and the slavery that goes on today. We've all heard about human trafficking. And even in Africa today, uh, you have a great deal of slavery going on. I mean, you know, back in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, you had, as we said, a lot of Africans involved in slavery, not just the rulers. You had entire tribes that specialized in taking slaves. I mean, in the 16th, 17th century, it was the Imbangala who the Europeans just tapped into what was already happening there. And again today, you see slavery again in places like the Ivory Coast. It's estimated there are up to 150,000 uh, child slaves working on cocoa plantations. And it's very difficult to eradicate these things. It's very difficult to put pressure on independent nations to tell them how to behave. It's a key problem. You know, it's something that needs to be concentrated and focused on today, rather perhaps than simply concentrating on slavery of the past. It's very real, it's very present, and it's seriously part of human interaction today, and it has to be addressed. What can one say? Man's inhumanity to man, in all eras, in all races. Barbarism lurks beneath the surface, and in many, it flaunts itself in blatant plain sight. It's a very sorry tale. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck.